All right, good evening, everyone. Glad you all are here. We're going to be looking at Matthew 25, of course. Last week, we finished up the parable of the ten virgins, which is great to read in this section, because especially when we get to the parable of the sheep and the goats, or the final judgment, uh, we're going to see a lot of parallels, and we'll already have sort of a mental cognitive map for how to understand that. So without further ado, let's open with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon our study, upon the teaching of your Son's final coming, his glorious advent and judgment. And we pray that you would indeed make us wise virgins, pure in your sight and wise unto salvation, that you would make us faithful slaves and servants, stewards of the good gifts that you have given, crucifying all unbelief and all laziness within us, and that on that last and great day we would stand before you, not as those who think we are worthy, but as those who humbly receive salvation full and free as the gift of your beloved Son. In his name we pray. Amen. So just to jump right into it, it is good for us to take a look at chapter 25, verse 13, which I know is the last line of the section of the parable of the ten virgins, but it is grammatically connected with 14. So our Lord says, watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And we remember that the real point and purpose of the parable of the ten virgins stated most simply is the bridegroom is coming, the wise will be prepared for his coming. Okay? So watch, be prepared for his coming. Now, immediately then, 14, for it will be like a man going on a journey. We've seen this motif used by Jesus before in more than a few of his other parables, and it is always a reference to him. So he is the man going on a journey. We know he's going to ascend into heaven. So this man goes on a journey, and he calls his slaves. And paradokin, it's a word for that doesn't just mean um, like gives over, but uh, there's a formality. Handed over, the ESV has it entrusted. I think that that's a great uh, translation. That's fine. This idea of traditioned, handed over, entrusted. To them, his property, his own, his own substance or essence. Well, see parallels with this of the parable of the minas. If you remember that one in Luke chapter nineteen, that parable is taught just before his entry into Jerusalem. This one is being taught after he has entered Jerusalem, and there are some similarities, but there are some differences. To one. Of his slaves, he gave five talents. Now, a talent is a huge sum of money. The ESV note says that the talent is a monetary unit worth about 20 years wages for a laborer. So if my math is right, there's 100 years of wages. Take the average uh, maybe salary in the U.S. and multiply it by 100. It's a huge sum. It's important to see it's a huge sum if we're going to delight in what the Lord says later, because he calls this huge sum very little, nothing at all. all right, so five talents, 
are given. Then to another, I'm still on verse 15 of his slaves, he gives two, and to another, one. So in the parable of the minas, there's 10 slaves and they each receive one. Here there's three slaves and they each receive a different amount. And then we're told why that is. At the end of verse 15, to each according to his dunamin, his dunamas, his ability, his power, his uh, capability. So that's, um, yeah, that's just what that says. Okay, then he went away. And that's kind of the end of scene one, as it were. Verse 16, he who had received the five talents went out at once and traded with them. So did business with them, traded with them. That's all proper. And he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, if you remember in the parable of the minus, the guy takes it, wraps it up in a napkin and puts it away. Which kind of has a connotation, especially this close to the passion of wrapping in the burial garments. But here it's even more explicit, isn't it? You just plant it right into the earth as if burying it, as if it's dead. All right, now then verse 19, and this will be helpful for us to hear, especially in light of earlier statements of Jesus. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came. So if this is our Lord talking about his second coming, which it clearly is, he says it's after a long time. So here would be further proof that Jesus himself isn't thinking, uh, boy, my return's probably going to be just right around the corner. Mm-hmm. He probably already has a sense that he's going to return in a long time. You know, one thing that I think is also implicit, it's very clear, but we can miss it because it's not explicit, is at verse 16, he received the five talents, went at once and started trading with them. So right off the bat, he's trading. Now, it doesn't say he like instantly that afternoon made his five talents. I mean, think of how much money that is. That's not going to happen instantly. What did he do? Go to Vegas and put it on the black? I mean, it's not going to happen. So he went out. He got to work right away. That's the point. And as he was working, he made five talents. Same with the guy who had two. He went out to work right away. And then over the course of time, made two talents. Okay, what then about the third guy? Well, he went right away, out and away, and buried it. And what was he doing while the other guys were trading and conducting business and doing the work of their master? If I was going to be overly dramatic, I'd kick my legs up on the table here. That's what he was doing. He was hanging out. He could care less about his master, care less about being a, about the business of his master. He was in the business of his own ease and his own pleasure. And we'll see that because it's explicitly what the master accuses him of when the master returns. 
So some things that are, are clearly there, but I want to draw your attention to even here at this stage. Now, after a long time, verse 19, the master of those servants, the slaves, came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered. There's the paradokin you entrusted to me again. I don't know why they don't just use the same language. You entrusted to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. So a little bit of a nuance in Luke's gospel with the minas. Here is your mina, your mina made. The emphasis being on the mina itself doing the work. But here the servant's not afraid to say that he himself did it. It's like St. Paul. I worked harder than all of them. Not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Well, which is it? Both. Right? That's the that's the paradoxical nature of sanctification. Is it you who did it or not? Yes. Do you take credit for all of that as a Christian? No. You give credit to God, right? There's the paradoxical nature of that. And so I think when you contrast the minas and the talents, you see that wonderfully. All right. Well, what does the master say in return then? Obviously, he's going to be pleased. This vast sums of money. He's now got 10 talents, which, what is that? 200 years wages, a vast sum, a huge sum of earthly riches is right there. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. I love that. You have been faithful over a little. That's what the master thinks of all this earthly wealth. You have been faithful over a little I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And of course, just what a beautiful, beautiful statement to slow down and take in because it's so familiar to us and it's even a bit of a preaching trope in Lutheran circles, but it's worthwhile just taking in the fact that Jesus does, in fact, say this, and it's beautiful. So here, too, it would be worth pointing out, he doesn't say, you know, there's there's no talk about the guy's failures or did he work hard enough or couldn't he have made more? It's just, here's what I have. That's wonderful. <laughs> and that'll become, that. that's a point that will be fleshed out all the more in the next section. Right? There's no condemnation for the man who makes Five talents. And likewise, there's no condemnation for the man who makes two. That takes us on to 22. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered, again, Paradoke, and you handed over to me or entrusted to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. Huge sum of money, once again. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So he receives the equal, even though he's only brought in two talents, the other five, he receives equal praise, identical praise. You know, and again, worth just retrospectively highlighting this back, this little detail at the end of verse 15 
he gave to each according to his ability. Well, who judged and assessed the ability? The Lord himself. And so the Lord was not wrong, (laughs) as you can see. All right, 24. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, now here we can do a contrast. Master, you handed over to me. Master, you handed over to me, or you entrusted to me. That's what the first two say. What does this guy say? Master, I knew you to be a hard man. The others point out the obvious fact of his graciousness. You entrusted all this unto me. You're manifestly and obviously gracious. This man overlooks that completely. This man says nothing of his graciousness, nothing of what he received, what comes out of his lips. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, a skleros man. The other is the austere, or yeah, steros man, the austere man. Um, here it's uh, the root is where we get the root skeleton, like a bone hard man, calcified man. <laughs> I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you, where you scattered no seeds. And that's a uh, seed. And that's um, very parallel to what we saw in Luke. But that's a kind of a lie. Yeah, it's totally a lie, isn't it? Yeah, because he saw it because he gave money. Bingo. Bingo. Excellent point. Yeah, and and you bring, I mean, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Chris, because you understand the accusation here. What is the un- accusation? When when you say to someone, you reap where you didn't sow, you gather where you scattered no seed, you're essentially calling them yeah, a thief unjust right? Unrighteous. You're going to take what you didn't earn, which is wild because the Lord's the one who gave in the first, (laughs) he gave freely and he set no expectation. You know, that's the thing. He set no expectation. He didn't say, he didn't say, now here's your five talents. If you don't make me five more, you're going to have hell to pay. He sets no expectation. He says, here's your five. I entrust them to you. Do with them as you will. Succeed, fail, whatever. Here they are. I entrust them to you. And so he does to this man with the one. And this guy has the audacity to say, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you do not sow and gathering. So not only does he completely not acknowledge that he's been given this gift, but he actually accuses the man of injustice. Because you were so terrible, I was afraid. That's what he says. Now, do you think he was really afraid? (laughs) I, I agree. I don't think he was actually afraid at all. Did he act like someone who was afraid? No. Kicked his legs up and sat around waiting. He wasn't fearful. Maybe he was banking on the fact that his master would never return, but, and, and he'd just go dig it up and use it at some point. But, he doesn't show any signs of being afraid. And I think that's also borne out in the master's words to him. So he says, so I was afraid, you know, you're such a meanie. By the way, this is a great case study in like manipulation within the church. Very frequently, it starts like this. You're such a meanie. (laughs) I know you to be a hard man. 
delightful. So I was afraid. Oh, poor me. I'm the victim. You're such a meanie. Oh, just poor abused victim. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. I went and buried your talent. If you entrust a talent to someone, say, hey, I'm entrusting this to you. Go do what's right. And you just go plunk it in the ground. Is that what's right? It's not what's right. Now, it's implied here. It's explicit elsewhere, or in Luke, I mean, because he literally tells them, go conduct business. And the guy's disobedience to that is all the more explicit because he just doesn't. He doesn't go and conduct business. He goes and buries it. Very similar here. All right. So what does he say? His master answered him, you wicked, evil, and slothful, lazy. So see, he knows. He knows that he's wicked and lazy, and he's concocted this excuse. I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. And he's going to bear that out just like he did in the parable of the miners. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested. It's actually cast, and we'll get into that in a minute. You ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with my own interest. Do you remember, um, this is this is telling in Second uh, Samuel, the Old Testament reading for this past Sunday. It's, it's sort of David's final song, um, kind of his final statement. And he's got this line, you know, with the merciful, you show yourself to be merciful and so on and so forth. With the torturous, you show yourself to be torturous. <laughs> Here with the person who accuses him of being hard, he shows himself to be hard. Oh, you knew me to be a hard man? Very good. So surely you've got my money with interest, right? <laughs> so a wonderful, wonderful way of presenting uh, that same teaching we find in Second Samuel here in our Lord's Sermon. You ought to have balain, uh, which is to cast you. You ought to have cast my money with the bankers, which now this is the only time this word is, this specific word is used. And it can also mean money changers, which is insightful because money changers, what are they really up to? They're making their money off of interest. What's another, what's a more biblical word for interest? Usury. How does the Old Testament scripture look at usury? Yeah, forbids it is sinful. There's all kinds of irony here. Like, you knew me to be a hard, wicked, unjust man. Then you should have handed it over to the usurers that they could give me usury. You think I'm wicked? Then you should have proceeded as such. Why you could have used the money? Let's say, this is what you said, 100 years worth of service? What a talent is? Yeah, a talent is a monetary unit worth about 20 years wages. So if you get five talents, that's 100. Yeah. If he would have, let's say he was a bum, he could have built a nice ranch and all this other stuff with the one talent and put people to work building the house, farming, all that stuff. So, yeah, there you go. Even do that. Chris, you're, I'm glad you're our treasurer. You are really good at this, at this uh, <laughs> parable. So, yeah, for those of you online, I know you can't always hear the comments. I'm going to do my best here. So, uh, you know, Chris was pointing out that the one talent, relative to the others might seem like a little, we're still talking about 20 years worth of salary. We're still talking about a huge amount. If nothing else, he could have supported people in the attempt to prosper, right? 
Now, and again, the Lord never says, hey, you know, if you don't meet such and such a quota, I'm going to be irritated. The implication is I entrust this to you. If you lose it in faithfulness to me, well, so what? Then maybe I have myself to blame because I knew how talented you were or what, you know, ability you had. And I gave you according to your ability. And if there's a loss, it's on me, right? I mean, if I give my son $10 and I say, hey, put this to good use, and he doesn't, I at least share some of that blame because I should have known my son better. (laughs) Yes, sir. I don't think so at all. I think he's playing tongue in cheek because so, and that, that may be just to finish my point in the same way that bankers and money changers can be used interchangeably with that word. Uh, we get a sense that even today, how do bankers make their money? Usury uh, in a general sense, right? I'm not trying to peck on, I worked as a bank teller. I'm not trying to self condemn here, you know, uh, and then, and I mean, we live in, in this sense, we live in Babylonian exile. How are you going to, you can't avoid usury in this and exist in the United States of America. Staked in, right? We live in Babylon. So the Lord overlooks those iniquities, but we shouldn't thereby say, oh, they're not iniquitous. <laughs> okay, so this idea then, I mean, I think he's, I don't think he's softening here. I think he's saying, you have just accused me of being an unjust, a wicked man, a hard man. If you knew that to be the case, why didn't you cast my money in with the wicked, the other wicked hard men, the bankers and money changers, who would at least give me back what is mine with usury on top? So I think this is a really like nasty rhetorical device, right? He's just driving home the point. Then you ought to have cast my money and this cast, I mean, this is the same word for like excommunicated, like um, when someone's cast out of the synagogue, when Jesus is cast out of the city, um, this casting out always carries with it a, a, a connotation of like, um, yeah, you should have thrown it onto these, this den of thieves, this den of robbers, right? So I think this is all tongue in cheek. Because otherwise, the accusation made by the Pharisees would be like, hey, what are you, you know, what are you going for usury for? Of course, the Pharisees were all on board with usury. They were lovers of money and willing to be corrupt, to corrupt themselves in that regard. So they're not going to say anything either way. Okay. I guess once more, just so we don't skew the text, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. Now I could just simply use this as my proof text for God does not care for egalitarianism. And God does not have our hyperfixation on everything being equal all the time. Nor is God necessarily one who says, oh, the other guy's only got two. Let's give it to him so he's closer. Not okay. And of course, there's a deeper theological point at play here, which I'll hope to draw out for you. Take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, will more be given. 
and he will have an abundance. Bingo. So for those of you online, David just pointed out, he retains the 10 talents. And he says, you know, so just revisiting then, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. That doesn't go back to the Lord. It remains under his trust, which then would be the earthly as well as the heavenly. Which is really rather profound thing that even that which you the Lord has given you on earth isn't sort of like taken away from you and exchanged. We see this on a more comprehensive scale when Revelation talks about the glory of the nations being brought into the new Jerusalem. That's not a glory that's invented ex nihilo. It's a glory that is in continuity that what has occurred and taken place and what they had um, in this temporal world, in this age, is brought in onto the service of God eternally. So it's a, it's just a wonderful statement of grace. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out, David. So um, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the 10 talents. He maintains possession of those talents. Trust continues to be his. And then herefore, to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, this is this kind of refrain, either this specific refrain or this kind of statement is very common in the preaching of Jesus. Uh, it's somewhat enigmatic, but not really. And what I think is fitting, especially for our study, is if we leap back to Matthew chapter 13, verse 12, because here is an instance in which he uses very similar language. And he does so in regard to the parables, more broadly, the word itself. So here in chapter 13 of Matthew's gospel, you have the parable of the sower. And then immediately after that, starting at verse 10, you have Jesus doing his theology of the parables. The disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets, the mysteria, the mysteries of the kingdom of the heavens. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. It's identical language, isn't it? That'll help us more than anything to understand what the talent is. Because it's not your spiritual gift inventory from the 1980s. It's not uh, your talents and abilities like, oh, I'm a great musician. You know, it's nothing like that. It is, frankly, the deposit of the word of God received in faith. What does it mean to conduct business with that? You're doing it right now. That word of God that he deposits with you according to your ability, as you conduct business with it, grows. To the one who has, more will be given. To the one who accepts the simple statement of the gospel and believes in Jesus, more will be given. The parables are given that you might have more and more and more. To the one who rejects the simple 
gospel proclamation, who rejects Jesus, he has not. Even what he has will be taken away. See? So this is a thoroughgoing theology of the parables, but more broadly, the word. And the talents are the are those priceless treasures, priceless temporal treasures that God gives to us here, which is also why we don't see them taken away. In fact, the primary reason why we don't see them taken away. And why then it is also true that even the true treasures that we have here on earth are but a little. You know, to paraphrase St. Paul, we see through a glass dimly. <laughs> So that's what I submit to you is really the root essence. I mean, of course, we can kind of homiletically expand to the whole stewardship of everything God's given you and, you know, all of that. That's fine. I'm not opposed to that at all. But if you were to ask me just pure exegetics, what does Jesus chiefly have in mind here? What does the talent represent? I would say it's the deposit of his word and his gifts. Uh, that that itself multiplies itself within you. Is that why it's over and over in the Old Testament gives the name of the people that did things? You know, coming back from you know Syria and Babylon and the people that helped build the wall and stuff like that. Some of them you see their names, some of them you don't, but you know they're reported. Because even that little girl that's. Uh, Naaman the Syrian, mm-hmm. that little girl that was taken from home, her name's never given, and she talks to her mistress and says, hey, there's somebody in Israel mm-hmm. that can heal you. Yeah, yeah. Her name is never given, and you're thinking, and even it is a serpent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, the statement for those of you online um, that was made, and I agree with it, is the Bible even shows how God cares about the small acts of kindness, which are really rather profound. And he cares about them enough to engrave them in his word unto the ages of ages. And um, that's not a limitation. It's not saying, "Uh uh-oh, we didn't live in Bible writing times. Guess we missed out. That's an indication of God who remembers all good things. And even the smallest act of kindness, giving the cup of cold water to a little child in my name, that such a person will by no means lose his reward. It's one of my favorite quips, you know, um, on the one hand, God doesn't keep score. He doesn't keep track of your sins. But when it comes to your good works, he sure as heck keeps score. <laughs> and he's even keeping score and counting things as good works that you might not count as a good work yourself. So he doesn't do that in order like, OK, well, you got to meet such and such a threshold in order to get into heaven. And that's never the point. But the point is that. Uh, not one single good thing that you do is lost into the abyss of nihilism and meaninglessness. Not one single thing, because God sees it, God knows it, God promises to reward it. That just imbues every moment of our lives with meaning. And it imbues, and I think it strengthens and encourages us, especially in our vocations. Oh, man, being a male in the year of our Lord 2023 is a pretty thankless job, isn't it? I mean... You know, I, I, I'm sure that you just any dependent that you might have is just fawning all over you for the service that you've done for them, done unto them over the maybe decades of service. I, I'm sure you're just so richly and abundantly rewarded. You're you're humbled by that. 
Uh, but if not, if not, then take heart. Uh, because though other people around you might take you for granted, uh, the Lord sees and the Lord will reward. And that's the best impetus toward doing good works unto others because it takes completely out of the equation whether they deserve it or not, whether they're grateful or not. Just go about your business in a way as pleasing the Lord, right? Okay, so how does this end? It ends uh, this kind of great way. So, verse 30, and cast. It's the same root word, balain, cast. So you should have cast my money with the bankers. Cast this guy, the worthless or useless, I think is better. Because it that gets back to the slothful, the lazy. And he's lazy and slothful because he doesn't believe in the graciousness. He has no idea. In the that his master is gracious and good, despite the evidence laid into his lap of 20 years worth of salaries. I mean, this is also the obscenity of unbelief, right? Here it is. It's yours. It's all there. No, I don't believe it. I'm just going to go bury it and act as though it weren't mine. That's unbelief. And then the lazy slothfulness that commences. So cast the useless, worthless, slothful, wicked servant into the outer darkness, which is, of course, Jesus always has us help. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, if there's uh, any further questions or comments, I'm happy to entertain those. Otherwise, I'll press along, seeing that we're at about just past the halfway mark, and we've got um, we're we're doing all right. We've got one more to go. Yes, sir. If you were going to tell us the difference between this and March, uh, uh, Luke, uh, Luke 19, the parable of the minus. I've tried to do that along the way. Um, was there any, I, I mean, they're very similar, but there are key differences and key emphasis. They're both preached by Jesus within the span of probably a week. Could, could it be that Matthew actually heard what I witnessed through the parable and then mm-hmm. Luke was kind of secondarily from Peter or whoever he was talking to? Uh, that's, yeah, that's always, I mean, that's always a possibility, but I doubt it. I doubt it because of the chronological markers. This one is very clearly preached during Holy Week. The other is very, in Luke's gospel, is very, the parable of the minus, very clearly preached before Holy Week. And there are key differences, at least in the details. I I would generally agree that they carry the same kind of thrust, the same kind of principle. I would generally agree with that. Um, There are some nuances and some differences. They kind of complement one another. Um, but I think we should read them as distinct parables for sure. As a preacher, I also know you preach the same sermon, just you put slightly different clothing on it, right? Works. Works. But what we've been saying, but Luke, when he makes both his gospel and act, he is, because you brought up a point that I find it different because he's very meticulous. Who's that, Luke? Luke. Mm-hmm. So when yeah. he hears something, it's not like second-hand information. He's more like a court reporter. Mm-hmm. He's very specific on detail because he says so um, when he's writing the letters. He says, yeah. hey, you've heard it before. He's writing to this guy and says, but I'm going to give it to you in detail mm-hmm. and in order. Mm-hmm. So when he, when he made the comment, well, he got it second-hand, I, 
I don't think so. I'm thinking Luke is really particular mm-hmm. about the way he writes. So it's more like a court record. Yeah, for those of you online, I don't know that I'm going to be able to properly summarize. Uh, you know, Chris's point is that when Luke's writing, it's more like a court record. And I, and I agree with that. Uh, Luke, of course, isn't one of the original 12. So he's not there as an eyewitness the way Matthew is. Um, but of course, so when you talk about Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're talking about what we call the synoptic gospels. Um, sin and optic eye, same eye, they follow the same chronology. And so I think, you know, even though, yeah, Matthew's a, an eyewitness and Luke is meticulously getting his information from reliable firsthand sources, um, along with Mark, these three are presenting the same basic chronology. I, again, I think there's, there's two, but we've seen this multiple times with Jesus. He preaches parables that have the same essential point but they're colored differently. And I would assert to you that I think all preachers do that. <laughs> so I think that's what's going on here. Yeah, I think that's what's going on. Okay, so then um, just for the sake of pressing along, because I want to get through this, it's important for, uh, for our schedule. So at 31 then, when the Son of Man, so Jesus speaking here of himself, comes in his glory... So this is why we always talk about his first coming in humility and his second coming in glory. Notice that it is just a singular coming that Jesus says. I shouldn't have to point that out, but it may as well in this day and age of all kinds of like pre-millennial, post-millennial. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. So clearly all the people of the earth. Maybe in our day and age, we do need to point out that there are distinctions between people because in our radical, insane egalitarianism, we're always trying to say there's no difference between one person and another. It's like, I kind of rejoice for the next generation to come and just be like, the emperor has no clothes on all this stuff. Of course, there are races. Of course, there are nations. Look, the Bible even says so. Not only the Bible, but my eyes. (laughs) It's great. All right. And all are accountable to him. Now, there's a deeper theology of the nations um, that we're not going to go into, but you can see that here. And it's much more common. uh, It's a much more common biblical theme than one might imagine. The nations are all accountable to him. He divorces the nations, disinherits them, establishes his own nation, through Abraham, and then engrafts the faithful of all the nations of the earth in, and then regains, or not regains, but reseats himself as the king over all the nations who are all once again and finally accountable to him. There's the Reader's Digest version. So before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, don't ask me uh, any in-depth question there, please. <laughs> I assume that the sheep are prettier than the goats. That's about the depth of my knowledge there. Someone know, are these like two different goats have beards? Spe- oh, man. Okay, well, at least a fellow beard man points out that goats have beards. Yeah. All right, so the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right 
but the goats on his left. So are you getting the picture then? Um, glorious Christ is sitting enthroned. The angels are gathered around him. It's judgment of the whole nations of the earth. Jesus separates the people into two camps. It's not Jew and Gentile, sheep and goats. Believers on his right, the sheep, and goat, the unbelievers, goats, on his left. Um, frequently in Christian art, you'll see at the crucifixion, um, Jesus' head bowed one direction or another, looking at one direction or another. It's almost always to his right where the sheep are. So subtle reminder of that when you look at our crucifix, you say, why is his head tilted to the right? <laughs> so the sheep on his right, the goats on his left, then the king. Okay, so we've, we've got two divine titles here, the son of man and the king. Jesus speaking of himself, then the king will say to those on his right, to the sheep, come you who are blessed by my father. Now, if you know Jesus preaching, you know that there's a theology packed into these words. And there's a reason why he doesn't say, come all of you who have made a free will decision unto the Lord and given your lives to him and prayed the sinner's prayer. Okay, no one comes to the son unless the father calls him. And so that is what's packed into this language of you who are blessed by my father. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Simon Barjona, but my father who is in heaven. Okay, so come you who are blessed by my father, inherit, beautiful gospel word here fulfilled, inherit, because what? You have to be a son to inherit. You are sons of my father, the heavenly father. So inherit, again, an inheritance is given as a birthright, as a gift, not as something earned. So inherit the kingdom. Now get this too. I mean, this is Jesus just doing Pauline theology, okay? Before Paul was even a Christian. Prepared for you after you did a bunch of good works. Prepared from you from the foundation of the world. Before you were even born, this and was prepared for you. That puts all contingency out of the picture. Not if you do this, or if you do that, or if you fulfill X, or if you really clean up your act enough. There's just no threshold. It is such beautiful, crystalline, by grace, through faith, apart from works, theology here coming right from the lips of our Lord. This gift, this inheritance has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This was God's plan all along. Then he goes on to say, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. So does he mention any of their sins? No. No. He only mentions these good works that have been done unto him. Then the righteous, see what he calls us? Then the righteous, credited with his own righteousness, obviously, will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king, repetition of that, the king will answer them, Amen, or truly I say to you, 
as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now, only recently has the social gospel put one of the least of these, my brothers, is just any poor person out there. But not once in Matthew's gospel, save the entire New Testament, does Jesus ever declare that the poor and needy are his brothers. He just never does it once. So brothers are, at bare minimum, Christians. Uh, there's a lengthy explanation in Professor Gibbs. He's, the, he's got the commentary um, in, the, in Concordia Publishing House. He's a prof, unless he's retired, at St. Louis. Um, and he thinks that the brothers are specifically those engaged in proclaiming the word. So that, so and he doesn't limit that to pastors per se. Those engaged in preaching the word of Christ or those who are, and then especially it would be colored, hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison on account of the preaching of the word. Those are who's chiefly in view. Okay, so take take that for what it's worth. I'm not going to try to disprove or prove that point. I honestly don't even care if it's Christians. I'm fine with that. I don't think the Lord's going to be opposed to that. So the point being, um, obviously, we do good unto all as we have opportunity, but especially to those of the household of faith. And that kind of very clear statement of scripture is what's in view here. Okay. It's really a beautiful thing because when you see, and I, I think this is really ultimately the application. So maybe I disagree with Gibbs a little bit. I don't know who cares, but the point is I, there's this really beautiful thing. When you look at a Christian and you say Christ is hidden within this person, that's just an incredible thing. I don't think we're to read surprise into this, I think we're to read the saints, the righteous, asking for insight. I mean, it's true enough that we're blind to the to the reality of Christ in those around us. It's true enough that we're blind to that. But I don't think there's an element of surprise here. Well, I don't think there's an element of surprise because it's kind of ruined by the fact that Jesus has told us ahead of time. <laughs> this, is, this isn't a fiction. This is us. And we already know that this is the dynamic. So I think in the way that Jesus tells this parable, there's this sense of, Tell us more. Tell us why. Tell us why you say these things, right? And he goes on to say, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. All right. So to the sheep on the right, they're blessed by the father. They inherit the kingdom prepared before the foundation of the world. They did all these things. Now, notice he doesn't say because you did all these things before the foundation of the world, I prepared a place for you. That's a circular kind of logic and a circular kind of theologic. That's not what's going on. He prepared a place for them already. In time and place, he calls them. It's all by grace. And then the fruits of that are what we do unto Christ, unto the least of these, his brothers, and thus unto him. So I hope that that's clear. This is anything but a kind of works righteous judgment. But I think you can see why the Athanasian Creed at the end says those who have done good will go into eternal life and those who have done evil into eternal fire, whatever it says. So that, like that idea it's just encapsulating this teaching. It's just not giving you, it's not popping the hood and showing you the engine. It's just summarizing this teaching. All right, 41. Then he will say to those on his left. So these are obviously the goats, the unbelievers. And at least at one point, it's really good to do a contrast. So depart from me. So I think that that's the essence of hell is to depart from Christ. Depart from me, you curse it. So whereas the, the 
Sheep are blessed. Here, these are cursed. And here is a very key doctrinal point. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. Now, look at the parallel in 34. It should be prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But God's not a Calvinist. So it doesn't say that. And I think that that's a really important point. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. God doesn't, I mean, here's the reality, right from Jesus' lips. God prepared hell for absolutely no one. God prepared hell only for the devil and his angels. That's that's how determined God is and how uh, truly he intends that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, that the gospel would go forth and that men would not be disbelieving, but be believing. If they insist upon allying themselves with the devil and his angels, then ultimately they have to go with their allies. That's what's in view here. Well, those are the ones they worship when they were on earth. So naturally they would want to go. Yeah, right. Good point. Yeah, yeah. The point is, uh, just to kind of paraphrase for those online, they picked their team. Okay, so now, already they're condemned. Already they're cursed. Already they're departing from him. And then 42, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they, they, then they also will answer. So it's parallel. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or sick? or excuse me, or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you. Now, again, Gibbs doesn't like to read surprise here. He doesn't like to read self-righteousness. He just likes to read complete ignorance. And I, I think that that's probably right. At least that's how I feel today. So I think that this is especially the strength of Gibbs' point where um, he wants to see this as people bringing the gospel unto others or as Christians per se in the act of being Christians, because think about, think about this. How does the world treat Christians as they're doing their Christian proclamation? (laughs) I mean, the world is the one who makes sure that they're hungry and thirsty and imprisoned and have no clothing and no food. The world, if it, you know, as we're being Christians per se, as we're doing the work of Christ, because the world is allied with Satan and his angels, the world's going to foist all of this suffering upon us, even as it did Christ, not relieve that suffering. I think that that's, I think that's a really, I think that this is a pretty accurate portrayal of what's going on here. All right. Well, 45, then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not, or excuse me, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these You did not do it to me. So they did not recognize Christ in the Christians. Again, just to zoom all the way out, of the sheep on his right, only their good works are mentioned. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the goats on his left, only their sins are mentioned. 
There's not a single mention of, oh, yeah, well, you know, you help the old lady across the street. And that's, you know, you can think of Paul's statement that apart, apart from faith, all is sin. There's no good work apart from faith. There's nothing that's meritorious. That's the, that's the sense in which all our, all our good deeds are as filthy rags before the judge. So that's the parallel then. And then 46, we get the conclusion, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So again, second usage of that word, the righteous. And here is one of the great parallels. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an enticing idea that hell would not be permanent, but you have to do profound violence to Christ's words in order to make that so. And here is as good a line as any, eternal punishment and eternal life. So if you're going to say that eternal punishment doesn't mean eternal, then you also have to say eternal life doesn't mean eternal. And I know that that's a sobering point for us to consider, but that, of course, is precisely what we need. We need to be spiritually sobered that what is at stake in this life is of eternal consequence. So faith is given freely as a gift. The experience of it, retaining that faith, enduring in the faith, is a matter of eternal consequence, eternal life and eternal death. And that, again, right from the lips of our Lord, that is his final parable, um, as best as I can tell, chronologically. It is sort of the capstone and ending of uh, our study here of the parables. And as you can see, what commences next is basically on into uh, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and of course, Easter. Let me pause. Uh, we do have just a few minutes, so let me pause and entertain any thoughts you have or any questions you have um, in regard to this parable or, you know, anything else is free game, too. Sure. Is this a direct, this parable directly connected with the white throne judgment the chapter of the Revelation? Is it one and the same? Uh, my inclination would be to say yes. I to be absolutely sure, I just want to go look at it real quick to make to make absolute. Maybe we can do that right after the class. Uh, but my guess is yes, that because that also is the final judgment. Yeah, final yeah, judgment. yeah, yeah. That's what this is. Yeah, uh, identical. Yeah, 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 yeah. That would seem to me to be. Let me confirm it for you right after class. But that would seem to me to be the case. Um, it seems like the way, you know, because I'm reading the other way is when they go into an eternal punishment, they're going because that's where they want to go. They like going there because that's what they've been doing all the time before. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like God's answering their request. So when yeah. people say, oh, well, it's sad that they're going, I'm thinking, no, it's not sad because that's where they want to go. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this this is um, so the crooks, the allegorum is why are some saved and not others? And however you answer that, you end up doing violence to one scripture or another. And so it is the cross of theologians that is a kind of mystery that God hasn't clearly revealed to us. The goal then isn't to solve that mystery. The goal is to faithfully speak what God has spoken. And here I think you can see Jesus doing that wonderfully. Look at the sheep. Why are they sheep? Is it anything that they have done? No, he calls them blessed by my father. Inheritance. That's the language of birth. No one chooses to be born. Um, Prepared for you before the foundation of the world. I don't know about you, but I didn't have any part in that. (laughs) So all of this. So so who is the doer? For the under the sheep and for the sheep, it's all God. Now, if you look at the the consequences under the goats, you'll find that that's absent. It's not that they were prepared by you know that hell was prepared for them before the foundation of the world. It's not that they're cursed by my father. It's not that um, he has intentionally, purposefully disinherited them. In fact, as you look at this, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and the angels. And then who does Jesus lay the the blame on? I was among you and you rejected me. I was present always and ever with you through my Christians and you despised them and hated them. You persecuted them. You made them naked. Now, Jesus doesn't go into all of that, but it's obviously there. Yeah, but can you look at that? What's going on in China, in the Middle East, with the Christians that are being tortured, killed, and all this other stuff? And the people that are doing it—that's that's who they're they're with Satan, and that's what they like doing is ripping oh, yeah, people yeah. off and doing this. So when they say, "Well, I feel sorry for them," I'm thinking, "No, why are you feeling sorry? Because that's what they—that's what they were doing here." Yeah, it's a good it's a good point and a point revelation too, since Barry just mentioned it draws out is that in the end we don't feel sorry for them. I mean, you know, we have a kind of pity, but then a kind of hey, you you, you made your choice, right? Yeah. So yeah, and that is the paradox that I'm trying to spell out here that um, you know, the Lutheran position accords very well with Jesus' teaching here in this parable, because unto the sheep, God is given the credit, but unto the goats, the goats are given the credit. So it's not that precludes this kind of double predestination idea that and I, who knows, it's arguable how much Calvin actually puts that forward versus the later Calvin S. Uh, that's an arguable point, too. Yeah, please. It seems like the um, hell was not even created from the foundations. You know, there was a special hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you're exactly right. I think that that's exactly right. Yeah. God, when he made the heavens and the earth, didn't make a hell. There was no need for one. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I think that's a good close read. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The commentary being that I'm. Be- yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the depart from me that Jesus says is probably a relief under them, right? Because he's a terror under them. Depart from me is like, oh, thank goodness. Get as far away from that guy as we can. Anything else? Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.